Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. I'm Rowan. And I am Blue. And we are here today to talk about game design. This month, we are talking about the inherent conflict and tension between customization and content and how games handle it in that when we have customization in games, it's harder to prepare for what the player can and will be able to do. And that makes designing levels and such more complicated to create something that's engaging for the player and what they chose to be. And so today we'll be hopefully looking at how various games manage and handle this. So think of it this way. If a player can run, and that's the only verb they have in the game, the content, the challenges, all of the things that you can prepare for the player, pretty fixed. They can only run. So you know what they can do. But if the player can run or fly or swim, especially if they're exclusive, like they can do one of the three, then your content has to somehow account for that. And that's not always easy. And that's not always sometimes a, a consideration that um, developers make either, right? Like sometimes you just don't make that consideration and you let it kind of sort itself out. Because another thing that's really cool about video games is that players are pretty ingenious when it comes to solutions for things. Hmm. Like, I think all these games definitely have very powerful builds that were not expected other than one, I suspect. And with that, let's move on to our first game that I think is maybe many people's example of, like, strong customization in games. Diablo 2 is a year 2000 loot-driven action RPG developed by Blizzard North, which doesn't even exist anymore. It was directed and designed by the same team, uh, David Brevik, Eric, and Max Schaefer, and produced by Mark Kern and Kenneth Williams. A bit timely in a fashion to discuss this now, well, when we're recording, because Diablo 2 Resurrected is kind of around and on people's lips, but... If you're unclear about what the game is, it is an isometric view, click-focused RPG where your character kind of waddles around because there's this awkward, like, not-quite-run animation. And then you click on things, either left-click or right-click, to cast spells. That's that's a fact. Like, there are things that you would traditionally consider abilities, but for the purposes of the game, you should just think of them as spells. One-click is attacks that use... No resource, usually. And one click is attacks that generally use a resource. And the amount of like skills that can be mapped are just a click. That's you it. Can, you can map your left click button, your right click button, and there are four shortcut keys that change what the right click is. And you didn't know about. Yeah, which I didn't know about. Yeah. So it's not well explained in the game that that's an option that even exists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this means, and what is relevant to this as a game about customization, is that you can't equip many skills. And on that note, this is also a very early example of the classic skill tree. Um, Diablo 2's designers talked about how they were inspired by Blizzard's other work and how they could bring RTS tech trees into an RPG. This is like, as an odd side note, like many companies and people had this sort of idea like, Final Fantasy X would have the sphere grid, which is also just an elaborate skill tree and such, at around the same time. So this is a, what is it, not convergent idea, 
idea happening around the same time for many people. There is a smart person term for that, which is escaping us at the moment. Because we're not smart people. Yes. But yeah, so this has a skill tree system. So skills are presented from top to bottom in an order, and you can branch off in a few different ways. Every level up, you get one point to put into skills, as well as five points to put into stats. And you can invest multiple points into the same skill to make it more powerful. And the rule of thumb is that the lower on the skill tree it is, the more powerful it is, like the, the more, you know, more damage, larger area of effect, that kind of thing. And you need earlier skills to unlock the later skills. When we say lower on the skill tree, we mean Diablo 2 arranges its skill trees from top to bottom, which is different to how some games present them. But yes, so we have a skill tree from top to bottom. Top skills are your basic skills, lower down skills are your more advanced skills. Due to limitations in how many skills you can equip, the game generally encourages you to use as few skills as possible and to invest very heavily into those few skills. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. And here's the other thing that's kind of interesting about this early implementation of skill trees. A majority of the skill tree are active skills. Yes, passive skills are pretty rare in this game. Yeah, like there are a couple, and there are a couple that are like you activate once and then they maintain an aura but for the most part this game has a lot of active skills the tension comes from the fact that you only have so many skill points number one and you only have so many like avenues for activating skills number two so when you end up having to buy a skill in order to gain access to a better skill that skill point literally only serves the purpose of buying access the skill itself is useless. And also because of this real desire to dedicate characters to certain things, it creates an issue where it's very possible for characters to be hard counted by the game, by the content, because there's a lot of, especially in harder modes, either 100% resistances or like very, very high resistances to certain elements and things. So this would be a big problem if this was only a single player game, but as a multiplayer game, it's sort of manageable in a vague sense. Like I, I imagine from a design philosophy standpoint, they thought, oh, it's fine if your fire sorceress has difficulty in this area because she'll be helpful in another area and you'll have a team of people and it's fine if she's not super effective now. In, in theory, yeah, in theory. We're not, we're not sure that they thought that, but yeah, in theory. Yeah, I feel like Diablo 2 is very much built as a multiplayer game. Like Battle.net was established by this point. They knew that's how people engage in Diablo 1, particularly. I think there's some aspect of, yeah, it's fine to throw these very difficult things at players because there can be multiple players in a party. And who would make a single element sorceress? Well, yes. Everyone. Yeah. Uh, yes, everyone. <laughs> well, the thing being that every character has three skill trees. And if you spread your points out across the three skill trees, number one, it's hard to use multiple abilities, as we've said. But number two, you don't get to the good abilities. And even if you do get to good to the good abilities, you can't sink enough points in it to make it effective. The numbers in this game really work out so that if you don't specialize, you're just not going to do enough. This is a game about min-maxing. So the simplest example we can give you is fire because um you know for some classes fire is just one simple option often is flashy because fire and particle effects are always that way and so if you just built the game and you went oh what sounds cool chances are fire sounds cool however 
the game is split up into multiple acts uh, that serve as effectively like chapters in a book, right? And the final act of the game takes place in hell, where one would expect a lot of demons are fire resistant, just in general. The entire act is going to be resistant to one of the more common elements that you could build a character around. Some people have gotten screwed over because of this without knowing that this was the case, did it, and then regretted it. And let's talk about regret a bit. Uh, this game does not have the option to reskill, like to reset your skill points. Every point you're totally committed to, you don't know all the challenges ahead. So it's very easy to be like, oh, this firebolt that I got at the start of the game is very good. I'm going to keep using it and just level it up. And then you realize... That was a bad mistake that you can't undo. And sometimes you just put points into a skill because you can't put a point into something else first. The other thing that locks a skill is occasionally a level requirement. You can't start learning skill X until you are level 20. So what do you do until then? Well, you just keep chucking skills into an earlier one to make it stronger. That's generally what players do. It's often better to just not spend those skill points, but it feels like the game is like, oh... Why don't you look at a different skill tree? And I feel like it is, looking at the skill tree levels and things, it does feel like, oh, there's not much put do in this skill tree for now. What if I look at a second skill tree? But the game doesn't encourage that sort of thing very well outside of that. There's an interesting tension that I don't think was super planned for, because um, eventually down the line, after a few patches, the game got skill synergies added where taking a point early, there has a passive effect of boosting the damage of one of your later abilities. I was surprised to find out at the time, because I got into Diablo 2 fairly late, uh, I was surprised to find out at the time that that wasn't a thing that was like just in the game from the beginning, and that these synergy things were added on. Yeah, and the synergies are very interesting in a sense, that like, oh, if you level up X skill, it increases the range of Y skill. Yeah, and only if one thing... <laughs> <laughs> only one skill yeah and in like an ideal balance i was like oh so that means that if i make a frost build that's centered around frozen orb maybe it's like cool to level up these other skills to make it the exact kind of frost orb i want in practice that doesn't happen so much but i think it's a very clever way to try and deal with the problem of over investment in a few things it's still ultimately results in that but it's a cool strategy and i think that if the game had been initially built around it it probably would have been able to do much more with it and and i think that's about all we really have to say about this except for diablo 2 is quite formative to a lot of designers approach to skill trees and i think that the amount of frustration that this this particular model elicited would be the cause for a, a couple of innovations across the years. I don't have like specific examples I can point to, but I can totally see that as a case, right? Yeah, I definitely think that Diablo 2 is like one of the major influential works. It's a lot of people's like big RPG that they got into. It's a lot of people's experience with like loot-driven games. It is the thing that we refer back to when we talk about things like Destiny and Borderlands and all that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a very, very formative one game, and that's why we chose it as the first example, since it is such a distinct and well-known example of both customization systems and how they're about they're often about commitment, but also how sometimes content can result in builds that don't hold up 
and can really sort of end up trapping you in bad situations. But our next game is all about not trapping you in those situations. Wild Arms Crossfire, written XF, is a 2007 strategy RPG spin-off to the Wild West RPG series Wild Arms, developed by MediaVision, directed by Nobukazu Sato and designed by Nobuo Nakazawa. So, this is a strategy RPG somewhat like Final Fantasy Tactics in that characters take turns moving around a board based on their speed. They can do a movement and or an action depending on their ability set. And like a lot of Japanese strategy RPGs, there's a huge emphasis on changing classes of characters, often called jobs. Um, what's unique about Wild Arms Crossfire, though, is that usually job systems are about having that RPG progression for each job, as in you, you start off as this game's version of a warrior, the Secutor, and you learn a few abilities with that job, and then you change to another job, it starts with basically nothing and you level it up, which would be how most job systems work. In this though, when you pick a job, you have every ability that job will have. So you pick a job and you are completely that role. You have every skill. And by leveling up, you can then use those abilities other jobs. So leveling up classes is more about, leveling up jobs, sorry, is more about creating diversity of abilities. So what this allows this game to do is that it always can know, okay, at any point, any character can be changed to any job, which means that every character has access to every verb potentially. And the thing that we can't predict is how they combine verb sets, but not whether they have the verb sets or not. And so this allows a few things. It allows that the jobs to have very specific uses. So there's a class here called the Fantastica that has the ability to knock objects around at a distance to maybe move barriers, create barriers and things like that. You've got things like the Excavator that can move an absurd amount of distance, but does very little damage, but is great for like reconnaissance type things. Things that in other games might be harder to justify, but here, because you can have this very complete moveset at the start, it makes it work much more smoothly. Whereas in another game, you might have that sort of ability that makes the job work be several hours of grinding away. Speaking of grinding, can you grind in this game? Yes, you can grind. So characters have raw levels that increase their stats. You have currency with which you can buy items and jobs earn job experience, basically. And you earn that experience to get the ability to equip other classes with those abilities. So if you're leveling up the Elementalist, the first skill it learns, or sorry, that you can pass on is the magic spells that it has. And you can equip those to your warrior and cast black magic as a warrior, effectively. But what this means is that at any point, you can kind of decide to just, for example, give a character the excavator class, whilst excavator job, sorry, while still being able to do damage to make up for one of those weaknesses. More or less, yeah. So you can shore up weaknesses of characters or double down on strengths and things like that. And in this game, interestingly, a lot of the stats come from equipment. So 
a mage gets the magic power from equipping the tome items. And so that's one of the skills that you have to equip. So if you want the excavator to be able to cast magic and do it strongly, you need not just the elementalist skills, but you also need the equipment ability too, to equip the right items. Because equipment is also class divided. This gives just so much really, really good flexibility to the player, which in turn gives the designers flexibility to create obstacles that test the limits of the system. And normally that kind of carte blanche, anything goes uh, mentality is reserved for, you know, like post end game or something like that. And sure, you you don't want to put the hardest puzzle, quote unquote, um, combat puzzle uh, in the main line, but you could, right? Like, like that could be a reasonable thing to do here. That's right. And so one of the early missions in the game is like, oh, escort a bunch of villagers to safety. They're going to be attacked. So you need to have ways to heal them. And the game is very explicit, not very early on, at least about, oh, this is your task. These are the kinds of tools you need. It never goes, oh, and so you need this job. But it is like, you're probably looking for like these sorts of abilities. And as you go on, how specific that advice is goes away. But it's generally very specific. Oh, this thing is going to be about this kind of task. So you probably want high movement. There are a few ways to get these things, but early on at least, it's generally, oh, okay, I want healing, so I need chemists, since they can use items at a distance and things. I I think this kind of game is um, dangerous for people like me, because I have a tendency to just grind until I have generalists. Yeah, and to be fair, actually, one of the nice things is that the first skill you unlock usually per job is the thing that draws you to the class, the job in the first place. It's often like the thing that visually gets it. Like often the thing that most most defines a job is the very last item. So for the mage, it's like just a raw, like high stat boost to magic, I think. For the excavator, it's um, like the absurd movement ability that it has. But if you want just the black magic from a black mage, yeah, you can just get that the the very first battle you play as them, basically. Does this get into the territory of um, where by, you know, mid to end game, you're just kind of locked into something that's static and stable that can handle most situations the game throws at you? Um, Yes. Unfortunately, the game, for the first like half or so, maybe, it has a lot of like very interesting, more puzzly battles that ask you to use jobs in lots of specific ways. And as it goes on, it just sort of goes, ah, we're just going to really test how well you've managed to like make powerful things. Yeah. So yeah, it sort of does settle on just like, oh, okay, now you've done all the weird battle stuff. Now let's just settle into kill a bunch of things. Uh, That's that's an interesting thing that I always find in terms of like tension for content, right? That once designers get done testing creativity at some point, and then the game still goes on. So instead of testing creativity, we just start testing DPS, you know? Yeah. DPS and like whatever you call the equivalent of heal PS. DPS being damage per second and just, uh, yeah, it becomes damage checks. Can your team output this kind of damage to take something down efficiently? And sometimes that's not even the, the intent. Sometimes it is a case of there's an enemy that's going to make combat very interesting. So the most efficient way to deal with this encounter is kill the enemy first. Because if the enemy's dead, it can't do what's interesting about it, you know? Like, it's it's just one of these things where you can design something interesting, but because the player team can be so suited to dealing with everything, that's a thing that you can just shoot down. So, yeah, 
really cool. But compare this to, say, another system with jobs like Bravely Default, for instance, which we've talked about a few times on the show. You can just delve straight into what a job is doing, which means that it is very refreshing as someone who's played a lot of games with job systems that, oh, I can actually have content that's built around the jobs rather than it always having to be like, do they have this ability unlocked yet? We don't know. I think that's a real rare strength in games of customization to be able to directly challenge the interesting and unique tools you have and to reliably know, oh, yes, they have them rather than having to push it off into side content or optional things. It's like, oh, this enemy is particularly easy if you have a blah, blah, blah job. And I think that's about all we've got to say for this. Do you have a neat segue into the next game? Uh, excavators, but this time we're actually excavating. <laughs> deep Rock Galactic. <laughs> Gotta say it with a like, deep voice. <laughs> is a 2020 release, although it wasn't early access for a couple of years, cooperative first-person mining game developed by Ghost Ship Studios. These folks are so ghostly shippy that uh, we struggled to find proper credits for these fine people uh, online. I believe I have seen a credits roll in the game, but I couldn't reproduce it to be able to pull this information. So uh, know that this is probably made by people and like there are pictures of the team out there, but we did not easily find... Um, attribution. Sorry. Which is a real shame. It's very valuable to us to like give some attribution to the people that made these games. We often think about stuff just in terms of companies. Yeah. But unfortunately, this was not as easy this time as it usually is. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Trust us. People probably made this game. No, ghosts. It says ghost ship ghost studios ship made studios. by a ghost hey. ship. All right. Oh, made by a ghost ship, not even like yeah. a crew of ghosts on a ship. Fair enough. That's fair. All right. So what is Deep Rock Galactic? Deep Rock Galactic is a uh, first-person view shooter, like uh, shooting is a core verb here, that is focused on mining operations in space. In space is a like nebulous term because you're always diving into a planet and stuff, so you're going to be underground a lot. But the space part of it is so that you can have exotic locations where you have a lot of like crystals or organic matter or even like irradiated caverns and stuff like that you have a series of four different classes that you can equip at any time which are scout gunner driller and engineer and they all achieve reasonably different things in the game scout is a lot more mobile can get out higher easy but can't bring anyone with them Gunner is good at shooting things and killing things because as you're mining, you're going to be facing angry bugs that want to kill you because you're disrupting their nests, I guess. And Engineer is capable of, number one, placing down turrets to provide automated defense, but number two, also having this handy dandy platform gun that can occasionally give you like access to higher elevation or even just bridge gaps. Driller on the tin um, allows you to dig through surface and to accomplish this has like two drills on each arm that you can like swap in and out of that just goes through rock and um, dirt the really cool aspect of the game or one of the cool aspects of the game i should say is that the play area is completely destructible the world is for the most part i'm pretty sure there are bounds 
upper and lower that you can hit that you know, you just can't drill and dig past anymore. But you can actually just drill through, dig through any rock surface in the game. And that's really cool. That That's not an easy thing to do unless you like set out to do it. You know, this, this was a selling point for entire series of games like Red Faction and Deep Rock Galactic just kind of has that as a baseline. And like it's selling a four player co-op mining experience instead. But how does it have customization in it? All right. So I, I, yeah, I've gone on long enough for like what the game is. While each class has a specified role and you can swap between each class based on what mission you're going on. So you, you pick missions and you, you fly off to them, right? Each player in the lobby can just choose which class they want to be. So that's one very, very like shallow layer of customization. Within each class, you can specialize a bit more. To begin with, these are just making your strengths a bit better in specific directions. For example, the drill can go a bit longer without overheating, right? For example. But one of the things you can decide to do is, well, I run out of ammo a lot. It would be nice to have some kind of alternative means of combat. Something you can do is decide, I don't want to drill through too much rock. I want to be able to use these drills as weapons and make it a bit deal a bit more damage. Still reasonably shallow. And, and these are um, A or B options oftentimes. So you can pick one or the other and you can change these picks at any time. Um, at any before time? Before you're in a mission. Before you're before in a mission. mission. Sorry. I had to mm-hmm. pause there to like figure out what the phrasing was. Before you're in a mission. So very similar to Wild Arms Crossfire where before going into a mission, you can decide what you want to do you make your loadouts and then you go in based on what you expect to need yeah and just like wild arms like tries to tell you what to expect in a mission in mission select for deep rock galactic you will know certain things like the biome you're in with with enough experience you will know roughly what to expect with the biome like i know that certain biomes are a bit more vertical than others where yeah digging becomes a bit more valuable in those cases and does this customization let you like break out of the the roles a little bit like, oh, there, there are four roles, right? And this is really intended as like a four player experience most of the time, I imagine. Uh, a multiplayer experience, I will say. You don't need four. You don't need full role coverage because there is still this prevailing mentality of we don't want players to feel like they need a certain class. Like if you don't take the gunner, you just can't kill things sufficient. That's not true. Every class it is still a shooter every class is still able to kill things and you can sort of respect like maybe you've got two engineers one of them may be more spec to be damage dealing than the other one for instance uh, actually two engineers is a really interesting um example that you bring up so let's say you do have two engineers um one of the things that's unique to an engineer is the sentry gun right mm-hmm. if one engineer chose to spec for so one um one of the branch points for the sentry gun is do I want one sentry gun that's slightly better or do I want the ability to place two sentry guns right so for a better coverage of an area if you have two engineers and you go uh, one engineer on one option and one engineer on the other option you actually have an interesting choice that you can make here and this requires a lot of coordination that like even after hundreds of hours I don't really think about this <laughs> but this is possible right This is totally something that's possible because if you're in an area where you know, okay, we don't need a lot of coverage, one good gun will do us well, both engineers can restock the ammo on each other's guns. Oh. 
So you could decide that it's more important to have coverage and then the engineers are keeping all three guns up kind of equally. Or you can decide that this one gun that's stronger, that's actually better for us right now. And the engineer with the two guns can put all their ammo into that one. Although you're like customized into different specializations, coverage versus single target. Uh, in the mission, you can just decide, no, actually right now, single target's more important or coverage is more important. And then adjust play behavior based on that. And yeah, that's the kind of like next level of customization, right? Where you're choosing minute specializations. This gun now has more damage. And another option in that tree might be this gun can carry more ammo, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then lastly, there are, oh gosh, what is it called? They are overloads. That's what they're called. You can obtain something called overloads. And this is a bit more grindy of a process. These aren't just skill points that you learn from leveling up. These are. Like you got to play every week and, and get missions to be able to get overload components and you get overloads kind of randomly. But after you play for a while, you get a few options. Overloads are something that change the nature of a gun, of a, of a weapon, pretty drastically. And I, I say gun here specifically because overloads only work on guns. All your like traversal tools don't have overloads. The guns do. So simple example would be one of my favorite weapons in the game is a grenade launcher. As a standard grenade launcher, it can deal area damage. It's good for taking out, you know, packs of small stuff. Um, the overload I really favor turns it into a direct damage monstrosity. It reduces the splash damage by a, a like sharp amount, maybe like 80% less splash damage. So anything nearby doesn't take very much damage at all, but it increases the single target damage a lot. And by building the, the, the previous level of like this over this over this, by building that into like armor piercing and other like damage buffs smaller damage buffs i can turn it into a gun that kills like medium to large size things in one hit which i really enjoy so it goes from a like area uh control tool to that's a big target i want it dead to um but you know going in another direction there is an overload that turns it into a sort of traversal tool where if you're familiar with the concept of blast jumping um explosions in in a lot of first person shooters cause a physics shockwave that pushes things and players back this like expounds on that aspect of it so that it has a lot of pushback for the player so you can jump in the air and shoot at your feet you'll use an ammo which could be used to kill something but you can get traversal power from it uh, and that's one of the overloads so the decision for how you set up your your minor dwarf going into a mission is like that decision space is pretty broad and what you are choosing to do is based on a few things. Normally, I choose things based on just what I feel like playing. But if you are like really into like optimization and min-maxing, you go, okay, this is a mining type mission. As in like our goal in this mission is to get a specific resource out of this like cavern system. You will know that it's a snaking trail. There's not much branching. There's not much double backing. It's just going forward in this like A to B point kind of cavern system. And so traversal isn't as big of an issue. Let's go for um, area control so that we can mine in peace and then uh, damage so that if a big thing comes along, we can dispatch it quickly. So I just want to like do a bit of comparison to the previous things and make sure I'm following all this right. So like in Wild Arms, we're less customizing characters permanently and more customizing them for the things that lie ahead, very specifically. You're not locked in. And we're not locked in like Diablo. Yeah, like there are no permanent skill points that can never be reassigned in Date Rock Collect. And the the levels, how and how you approach levels 
will dictate your skill choices and your customization options for them. And there's a lot of variety in how you approach each mission too. There is, there is. Because that's one thing that Wild Arms is less successful in, in that a lot of the missions for a long period of time are fairly strict. They won't tell you how they're being strict, but they generally only have a few really viable loadouts. Mm. Deep Rock Galactic has kind of the benefit of being a sort of service game, right? It's being updated as we speak. The devs are continuously working on this. So, you know, one of the things that they occasionally work on is deciding, hey, we don't have a, a mission type that targets this aspect of the game and we kind of want to. So we spoke about Engineer a bit and how it has a turret. Well, I say recently, but in one of the latest uh, mission updates, uh, mission type updates, they added a mission where you're escorting a, a giant drill called the Drill Dozer. That's actually not super great for a sentry gun because the sentry gun is set up and forget and like, you know, leave it. But in this case, your target escort point keeps moving. So you don't like set down too much. An engineer still has purpose in these in missions because at some point you'll have to stop for refueling. At some point you'll have to restart. Uh, you'll have to stop for a defense. And so those points, uh, the engineer sentry gun is going to be useful. But in like the general flow of that mission, a more mobile gunner is going to be uh, more valuable to the team. You know, they with time and experience and feedback from the community are able to build missions that specifically target what the customization options they've set up can uh, allow, which is really cool. So like, yeah, that's the kind of tension for the customization players have and the like ask of the missions, the content that the game is providing. That's about it. And with that, let's move on to our next game. Fallout New Vegas is a 2010 open-world narrative and exploration-focused RPG developed by Obsidian Entertainment. It was directed and designed by Josh Sawyer and produced by Mikey Dowling, Jason Fader, Matt Singh, and Tess Treadwell. In this game, you have a lot of options in how you build your character. You have the special stats, which are your core character stats, like charisma and strength. So special is actually... Not an anagram, a, a a collection of stats. An acronym. Strength. Yeah. It, uh, is it an acronym? Because it's just listing yeah. the stats, it's right? It's strength. Yeah, that's what... Um, it's strength, perception... Um, endurance, I think. Yes, but charisma, strength, perception, endurance, intelligence, charisma, intelligence, agility, agility luck. luck. Which, special is like such a good... It's a really, really smart thing. Yeah. But, so you have your special stats. And these are like very core. They are changeable, but not much. Like, they're very special rewards when you can change those stats. Then you have your skill points, which are about 15 or 20 or so. And they're things like science, speech, guns, energy weapons. And they modify how well you can do certain things. And they go from 0 to 100. And then you have perks, which every few levels you can pick an additional perk. These generally are more unusual. They're not just straight, oh, you just do this better, or you get bonuses to this. They're often things that can really dramatically alter how you go about things. Sometimes giving you new options where you didn't have any. And sometimes little fun things like, oh, you have a bonus to this at night, or you have bonuses during the day. And sometimes just like new dialogue options that can range, that can give you a lot of new things, like you can be a womanizer, or 
You can play as a gay character and romance different people and so on. We have a lot of options in how we build our character. Before we jump into the game's content dealing with these options, I want to contrast quickly with the two other games that we've talked about, uh, three other games we've talked about, which is the special stats are, for the most part, completely static. Full commitment at the beginning of the game, very similar to Diablo. And while it doesn't offer you a lot of like on-the-fly adjustment, you can map your character out as you level up a bit closer to the you know the the other two, which was um, Wild Arms and Deep Rock Galactic. Yes, those are the games, and I was struggling to like kind of say like you you don't get the option to redo your stats and ever, but you can decide. Oh, I feel like I've been lacking in this category, and then kind of try to shore that up. You get a lot of skill points every level. Like you yeah. will have multiple skills maxed out by the time you finish with this game which is a variable amount of time so you can actually finish quite early a long way to say not quite a middle ground between like full retooling and full commitment but a bit more room to let a character grow it it, this is more rpg than i'm sorry than deep rock specifically because you're really learning this like kind of character as you're playing it and what they're good at, what they're bad at, and that kind of thing. And what you want to do in the world. Like, you can start the game with an idea about, like, oh, I'm a conversational, sciencey person that doesn't really fight much. And then as you go on, it's like, oh, people just want to fight in the wasteland. So I'm going to fight back, and you start leveling up guns. This is yep. more or less exactly what I did in my play. I wanted to play this, like, very conversational person, but I couldn't. And so I started picking up guns, and then I was able to traverse things much more smoothly. Yep. All right, now we can jump into how the game challenges these customizations that we have. And in some sense, it takes the the hard solution to this, which is it just provides you a lot of options quite often. So not every mission will let you do every single thing, mm-hmm. but often enough, you will find that your skills are useful in many missions. So this can range from, oh, speech will help you through this, barter will help you through this, medicine will help you through this, but also like, oh, if I have lockpick or have um, a high security stat skill, I can unlock this thing and get this and bypass a whole part of this quest. Or if you can talk your way out of a situation, you can bypass a different part. And a really good example of this is, in fact, the very first part of the game good springs yes and this is like a very very incredible tutorial i think because it establishes early on that there are many ways to solve a problem there are many sides you can take during a problem let me give the brief rundown of this mission there is a person in the town of good springs that another gang is hunting down and the town asks you basically to help them leave safely or at least get them out without them being killed. So you can side in a lot of ways. You can ask the owner of the bar to help rally up people to help out with this thing. If you have high stealth, you can sneak them out, I believe. If you have high explosives, you can get extra resources to convince the local explosives expert to help you and give you extra tools to set up traps for the the gang that wants to get this person. If you have good barter skill, you can convince the owner of the local shop to outfit your crew for a very, very low price. And it establishes that not just speech is good, learn speech, which is common RPG thing. It establishes that non-conversational skills 
like explosives, will be used in conversations. It mm-hmm. establishes that barter, skill that's often just for like buying and selling, will be useful outside of just the raw shopping mechanics. And it also tells you early on that you could be on either side, and being on the other side could ask you for different skills as well. I suppose interestingly to me uh, is that this questline always, almost always, no, stealth is an option, almost always ends with a shootout, right? Yes. It's just whether or not you're alone with it, if you're well-equipped for it, if, you know, there's a lot of things you're influencing around this shootout, but it doesn't try to pretend that it's going to be a game you can talk your way through completely. At some point, it devolves. With your conversation, you can make it easier on you. But yeah, yeah, combat's still a conclusion that will happen often in the game. And that's, it's hard to say if that's a weakness or not. But if you're customized in a way that doesn't function for combat, yes, you can make this game extremely difficult for yourself. But I think in general, players will take one of the variety of combat options. But yes, there's lots of ways you can approach any given problem. And that's how I think this game manages customization, just by writing a number of options and not always obvious ones a number of games tend to have like oh you can fight your way through it you can stealth your way through it you can charm your way through it or something like very set three solutions or something deus ex is kind of famous for this but here it's a lot more variable what's going to be useful and when i think that variety like keeps you on your toes for like noticing when to use certain things as opposed to just having the three core methods i guess yeah, I, I think the game's like really interested in shoving it in your face of like, hey, look, you can do this thing to the point where sometimes it tells you where you could have done this if you had a better skill for it. Oh, I love that, actually. By showing you that you could be doing other things, I think it it makes it more valuable what you chose. It's like, oh, I missed out on this, but now I can do this. I put a really high medicine in my char- into my character and I was surprised to say like, oh, all these cool medicine checks. But I was also very surprised to constantly see, oh, barter. Barter seems like yeah. a very useful skill. Comes up here and there. When you least expect it, you're like, oh, I, hmm. Sometimes it sets an interesting tone, though, because with barter skill, one of the things that the game likes to get you to do is negotiate, like, rewards out of doing a quest. And that makes me feel like a bad person. Like, please save my daughter from these people who've kidnapped her. Yeah, sure. You want to give me, like, a few extra caps to do it? <laughs> it's like... There's that interesting roleplay element associated, you know? Yeah, and I think that roleplay element is... This is one of the issues of respec or not respec that is a lot to get into at the end of one of these sections, but by not being able to respec in this, I think that is to its advantage a little bit, partially because a lot of these skills aren't terribly hard. This isn't like Diablo where skills are verbs. In this case, skills are more how good you are at verbs, which is a huge philosophical difference in how you approach skill systems, but also how you change your character over time is their arc. And this is a game that's about creating that narrative arc. You're creating a person and inhabiting that role more so than just engaging in a bunch of mechanical challenges, which the previous three games have been more about. Fallout New Vegas in comparison to Diablo 2, Wild Arms, Crossfire, and Deep Rock Galactic is monumental in scope yes by offering so much that you can do the game is setting itself this task i don't know that's an it, uh, that it's impossible but it's a very big ask to be able to really cater to all of the things that your character could potentially do in a meaningful way but i think that huge scope enables it because it enables so much to be like oh it's not for your character and that you can be just like that's fine it's not for me that 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 would be fine i don't think that 
the breadth of options it offers justifies how broad it did go. It it feels unfocused in certain parts, and when push comes to shove, it does feel like it just falls back on we're just a combat game. I think it's one of the issues of this game. Like one of the reasons it works is that the skills are more about how good you are at verbs, not whether you have access to verbs. Correct. Correct. Like uh, there's a lot that's smart in this game. There's a lot that is insane in this game. And this is definitely New Vegas, Fallout New Vegas specifically, is one of these types of games that I enjoyed the most out of a lot of these because man, these games sometimes struggle to get you invested. And in an RPG, investment is like really important. So New Vegas at least has that. It has a storyline that I'm kind of invested in. But yeah, I don't like how generalized it is. And so, you know, when we're talking about customization, the only reason I bring this up as a like kind of personal thing is because we're talking about customization here. The options that you offer a player also get reflected in the challenges that you then have to present them. If you offer a million options, but only ever challenge in these specific ways, then why have that customization? Facetious question. There, there are there are reasons. But New Vegas does at least do this thing where they offer you so much and they try to challenge multiple facets of it. I just don't think that they meet it in every case. So I'm not sure that there is a game out there that like should aim this high. But yeah, just keep that in mind. This is a game that aims very, very high. And it, and it gets far further than I would expect a game to get with this. But there are concessions, you know, like these games are buggy. They're not buggy because the people making them are not talented. They're buggy because the scope is so gigantic. It's so hard, nigh impossible to be able to hit every edge case, you know? Mm. And there's definitely like, because this game is so broad in scope, it has to have things like, oh, okay, if things go wrong, we have this thing we can fall back onto. In the mechanical sense, like, well, eventually, if you exhaust all these weird avenues enough, we will just put you into combat. Yeah, you shoot someone. Yeah, basically. In the storyline, they're sort of, uh, a method to always cause the ending of the game to happen, regardless of what you do in the world, so that it can always end. And it's kind of like combat. It feels like, oh, okay, sure. Because you can't account for everything. This game is so, so, so competent uh, at what it's trying to do. But at the end of the day, <laughs> I, I feel like the design is like the, the thing being challenged here. And yeah, it's good on you for aiming. But wow, this is a hard brief to me. It is a very hard brief to meet. Our next game is a much is much narrower in scope to I think all the games we've talked about so far in terms of its customization. Fighting EX Layer is a 2018 traditional 2D fighting game developed by Akira, produced by Ichiro Mihara. Akira Nishitani, directed by Yoshitsugu Kato, and designed by Shoichi Takano. To note, that's the lead game designer, and there is another team of designers below them. So this game is sort of a sequel to the Street Fighter EX games. Same same team. Some of the characters that appeared in that appear in this too, but it's separate from the Street Fighter IP. But it's your very sort of traditional... 2D fighter that has chains from light to heavy. You've got your six buttons of attacks. So you've got your kicks layer and punches layer. But we want to really focus on its gogi system, its deck system, where when you pick your character, you can choose their gogi, their deck, which has 
five icons in it. Each of these icons represents a outcome after you trigger a certain condition. So for example, um, we have things like Juggernaut, Infinity, Berserker, and each of them will gear your match to a certain point. And these decks are here to change the flow of the game across the full set of matches because fighting games are played first to two or first to three. And often each individual match is very similar within that set. So to encourage more variety in those sets, these decks were implemented. And this is a super interesting philosophical approach to a fighting game. So in every other fighting game, the thing that you can do at the start of a a match against an opponent and the things that you can do at the end of of a match against an opponent, they're the same. You don't gain abilities. You don't level up for the most part. And that's one of the core cool things about fighting games, honestly, that you don't have those things. And I say for the most part, there are exceptions. Like there are characters that literally have a level up mechanic in them, but they're gimmicks, right? Yeah, that's very specific. Like, wow, that's weird. Yeah. And often they even reset by the end of a round. Mm -hmm. They often don't have effects that last multiple rounds. Fighting EX Layer, the developer actually outright just said they wanted to change how the game flowed and felt as it went on. Not just round to round, but like as the match progressed, both characters um, will feel like they're maybe in some cases getting stronger, but like not even just directly getting stronger, but like are getting more options, are being able to do more. And that is really weird. Like, I don't know how to explain this in a way that would make sense, but trust a fighting game player when they tell you that that's interesting and very different than how a lot of other fighting games approach it. And some of these can change really drastically. So there are two things I think we want to focus on to just keep it manageable. The first one I think we'll look at is Infinity. So Infinity is all about super meter. Super meter lets you spend this resource on doing very powerful moves that in this game can combo into each other for really, really high damage. And you can also use it for a variety of defensive options too. So this deck consists of three identical abilities, which is attack your opponent 10 times to get increased super meter gain. If you guard 30 attacks, you gain the ability to cancel guards into certain abilities. And if you manage to spend 10 blocks of meter, then you gain the ability to recover your super meter incredibly fast. So basically. After you spend a complete super meter, you almost immediately get it back again. So this encourages a lot of things. A, you have to use a lot of super meter throughout the match in order to trigger this condition. Getting 10 blocks of super meter spent is actually not a trivial thing to accomplish. Yeah, no, you have to build it first, right? You have to build it first, which requires doing combos that are built for building it as well. And that's why, you know, there are three effects that are just the same that just increase super meter gain. Yep. So that you can get towards 10 just a bit faster. Yeah. And once you do, oh my God, you are just the most ridiculous powerhouse. If you can get to that point, you haven't won the game per se, but if you ever get a hit in, you will get such a better conversion off it than anyone else can ever get. And that makes you very, very terrifying. And let's talk a bit about when you can expect to get it. So Fighting EX Layer runs on a system of best of fives, traditionally. Yes. On average. You should not expect to activate the super recovery before like the third round. Yeah. Spending about, yeah, three bars per round is probably like pretty good. 
maybe four if you're pushing it. And this mentality affects the way you play. If you're getting to a full super meter to the point where you can't gain anymore, you start feeling, I should, I should just spend, I need to find an opportunity to just spend this. Yep. Because if you're gaining meter, but then you've maxed out, then you feel like you're wasting a resource. At that. And so this compares very differently to Juggernaut, which has abilities like build one bar of super meter, get more damage, allow 10 seconds to pass, move faster, attack your opponent a bunch of times, 10 times in fact, increase meter gain, attack your opponent with four hard attacks. Hard attacks become guard breaks, as in if you try and block them, you don't block them. Mm-hmm. And then if you get knocked down 12 times, you gain super armor. Super armor means that when you get hit, you don't get flinched, which means that you can attack through things. I believe even though the literal description doesn't say for one hit, I think it's only one hit that you have this super armor for. And so once this 12 times getting knocked down happens, which also will take a few matches to trigger... And it also changes how your opponent plays. Like maybe your opponent will deliberately avoid knocking you down after a certain point out of fear of you getting this ability. Yeah, that's a bit advanced, but there are definitely things you can do in a fighting game that specifically leave the opponent standing as opposed to ending in a knockdown state. And that gives up certain advantages. When someone is getting up, you can set up on them. You can do a thing so that they get up in a, into a disadvantageous situation. But if they're just standing at the end of your combo, you're probably just back to, you know, equal footing. Yeah, you're back to neutral. You don't have an advantage, but you're not at a disadvantage. It probably would not be worth it generally to not go for the knockdown even with this, but it does make you cautious about when you do and don't knock down. Yeah, it's a consideration for sure. And so this changes the rules of the game a lot. With the super meter thing, it's like, oh, you can just spam what used to be a limited resource effectively. But here it's like, oh, guarding is now different for everyone. I can stop you from guarding with a slow attack. Or if you attack me, even if I was doing something, I'm fine for at least a little bit. Those two things work in tandem, right? The guard break are happens on a hard attack. Hard attacks aren't easy to land because they are slow. Well... If it's a slow attack and I have super meter, you can't just flinch me out of something. You can't just jab me and stop me from doing a heart attack. The heart attack might still just land and you can't block it anymore at that point. And each of these decks is similarly unique in like how they change your verb set. Some are like more broad than others. There's one that gives you like invisibility when you dash and things. A lot of options. And I think by this point in the game's life cycle, It's generally accepted that certain characters are best with certain decks. But for, you know, a few years in this game's life cycle, there were lots of different opinions on what decks worked with who. Some of these decks allowed characters who usually would have a bad matchup with another character to tweak themselves to have better outcomes for it and so on. Like it was a system that encouraged like customization. If you're an attentive listener, you might be thinking, okay, cool. How does this relate to content? Well, the content in a fighting game is really, I think, the other player and how they respond to you. And this changes both how they respond to you and changes the entire flow of matches. And it really makes these like last, you know, when the game's final round, it's a deeply different game to when the round started. If you get to round five, you are not playing the same game anymore as you did in round one. And that's really exciting and cool. It, it is really weird and really, really cool. And it's a philosophy that is 
very challenging to players, and I'm not sure a lot of people understood. I didn't understand what Gogi was going for until I heard the comment that said the developers set out to make the games evolve as rounds happen. That is so cool. Here's another weird roll-on effect from this. In other fighting games, if you reduce the number of rounds that you're playing, that doesn't change the game that much, right? In Street Fighter, it doesn't matter too much if we're trying to play a best of three or best of five. It just changes how long it takes for us to get one decision. In Fighting EX Layer, dropping a best of five to a best of three means that some decks never activate. Just won't get a chance to. And it also means that if you did something like, you know, best of seven or best of nine, then things like Infinity, which are very specifically designed to be like, oh, towards the end of the round of the set, you're going to have this huge power advantage. Well, now that's just exponentially better than it was to start with. You can just deliberately lose those first few matches if you really wanted to, to get that advantage. Just spend meter in, in inefficient ways in terms of like dealing damage just to be able to build towards infinity unlocking. So yeah, not the kind of content that we spoke about in the previous four games where it's very specifically, now the developers are putting this in, now the developers are putting this challenge in front of This one is much more of a, how do I even approach playing against this other person? And it's it's not like wholly dynamic and it's not like you'll never see two of the same scenario again. No, that's not what we're saying here. But it is much, much more diversity in content than you normally see in a fighting game. And that's really cool innovation space to take here because it feels sometimes like the fighting game formula is like quite set in stone. It's a very intriguing game. I wish that I had more opportunity to have played it with a lot more human opponents, but that's what the current situation will do, I guess. And and on that exciting, uplifting note, let's move into our ending notes and summaries. So, this time, today, in this episode, we talked about customization, and as much as we could remember to do it, how it relates to the content and challenges that are presented to the player to be able to kind of really take advantage of that customization. Um, we started with Diablo 2, which is so heavy on commitment. Every time you add a skill point into this RPG tech tree, that's it, it's locked in. It's locked in for the rest of that character's life. And that has like interesting flow-on effects of if you can't see far enough ahead in what the game's challenges are going to be, you can build yourself into a corner where you individually as a character are just screwed in terms of the challenges that the game is throwing at. And then we looked at Wild Arms Crossfire, where rather than having deeply locked-in customization, characters are able to really change their verb sets at will, allowing the designers to assume that players have access to most things at most times. And while this can create some very rigid level design and rigid arts of players, it generally enables players to experience the fun of each job and mix and match in interesting ways that allows players to get the best out of both customization and the designers the most out of planning content around expectations. The third game we spoke about was Space Dwarf Mining, Deep Rock Galactic, where you have a few shallow choices and a few like small changes to your loadout, um, what your guns are specifically suited to do, 
and then a couple of like drastic ones. And this like weird hierarchy tier of small to big adjustments that you can make on the fly outside of missions allows you to tool yourself to very specifically handle what you think will be a challenge in a mission. You don't know for sure exactly what a mission is going to throw at you, but you know what mission type you're going to be on and what biome you're going to be in. And so you can decide to specialize to specifically target it or just generalize to try to hit everything. And then we moved on to Fallout New Vegas, which is a bit more like Diablo, where you're pretty locked in, but the character is evolving in a very like growing sense of the RPG genre. As you go through the game, you decide, I want to be able to deal with this situation. I want to be able to pass this skill check. And you're still committed, but you have amazing breadth of customization available to you. And a game that mostly you know, tries to meet. It definitely tries to meet it and mostly gets there. And then we looked at Fighting EX Layer, which is a much smaller game in like length than the other ones, where customization only matters for a given set of matches. But it dramatically alters how players approach the matches and it changes the feel of the matches throughout a set in ways that make it feel very unique for a fighting game. And seeing more of this sort of short form customization in fighting games, something that's very exciting to have a look at. And thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to talk with us about anything we discussed or correct us or even suggest games that maybe we missed for a topic, there's so many different options for customization that it's hard to narrow it down to a list like this. You should contact us at the show. You can tweet at us at Platinum Pit, or you can also email us or find our personal Twitter accounts in the show notes. You'll also find the Facebook page there. If you enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Or if you're feeling especially fancy, review it. You can find more of us. I think we both have more content at the Pixels for Breakfast website. You do a podcast there, Blue, I believe. A weekly just games, news, summary, personal feelings. A a get together where we go, man, this week has been hard. Here's what was interesting. Yeah. And on my side, I write occasional articles called Ludo Ludo Dissonance, looking at various often old games and interesting things that they've done. Usually now we would preview the next episode, but this episode we recorded in advance or when something goes wrong in the future. So we're probably fine and just a little busy when this came out. So check the feeds for what is coming up next. This is a weird time to acknowledge this, but there's a good chance that If you were listening to us in order last episode, we said next month, you'll hear us talking about five things. And this wasn't it. Yeah, this is why. And in fact, you may remember these five things from a different time that was then followed up by a different episode. And that's that mystery solved. Yeah. In fact, we know what that is, right? Yes. If you, this is what the speed and tension episode should have been. Yeah. A peek behind the curtains. So there's your fun (laughs) chronology. If you want to keep deep tabs on the platforms and pitfalls lore. And don't worry, we know that no one cares. (laughs) And with that, thank you for listening.